welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is sponsored this week by Holborn. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the 2020 Mutual Factor. Authors Chris Delhi and Neil Aldridge share why this year's market performance analysis is more timely and relevant than ever. Plus, underwriting advocacy. What one expert says will have the most profound impact on the future. But first, a quick wrap-up of what's going on in Washington. All eyes are on the Senate this week, where confirmation hearings are underway that will likely result in Judge Amy Coney Barrett being elevated to the Supreme Court ahead of next month's election. Plus, optimism of a possible COVID-19 relief agreement has stalled after a White House $1.8 trillion proposal failed to garner bipartisan support. And President Trump is back on the campaign trail for the first time since contracting COVID-19 after being cleared by his doctor. He made a stop in Orlando on Monday, with more stops planned in Pennsylvania, Iowa, and North Carolina over the rest of this week. Former Vice President Joe Biden, meanwhile, who maintains a lead over the president according to national polls, will hold a rally in Ohio. With less than a month to Election Day, Nemec Pack is embarking on a campaign to make a last-minute surge to help support candidates and at the same time help Nemec's Mutual Insurance Foundation in its efforts to recruit young professionals into the insurance industry. From now until October 31st, Nemec will match new one-time contributions to Nemec Pack with a 50% donation to the Nemec Mutual Insurance Foundation up to $25,000. Amid what is perhaps the most tumultuous year the property casualty insurance industry has seen in generations, some policymakers are calling for elimination of many, if not all, currently used underwriting factors. Aaron Collins, NAMIC's Vice President of State Affairs, says the most profound impact on the future of risk-based pricing is the wave of underwriting restrictions. Now, I would have told you and you might have heard me say uh, as soon as uh, March and April that this issue was going to come hard in 2021. But even in 2020, we've seen activity in more than two dozen states. Calls to do away with credit-based insurance scores, occupation, education, marital status, they all began in earnest as the economy took blows from COVID. NAMIC has advocated based on the efficacy and benefit to consumers of these tools, but we know that in the coming year or more that we're going to see dozens of these proposals. This anticipated stream was greatly amplified by the civil unrest after the murder of George Floyd and the resultant public conversation about discrimination in America. Now, NAMIC stands second to no one in calling for the end to discrimination. Our fabric of mutuality is based on a system of togetherness rather than separateness. So you will see us seek the ways in which we can meaningfully contribute to those solutions and drive toward our own emphasis on diversity and inclusivity. But it's now incumbent upon us to draw the distinctions between what is a conversation about ending racial injustice in our country and what insurance means, and that classification by risk is not the same thing as discrimination in the context 
of what the public discourse is about here. Erin's comments are an excerpt from her presentation on risk-based pricing and the future of underwriting advocacy from NAMIC's 125th Annual Convention. All convention presentations are available for you to view on demand at NAMIC.org. While 2020 has been a rocky year, the property casualty insurance industry remains well-positioned for the future. That's the conclusion of the third annual Mutual Factor Report produced in partnership with NAMIC and Aon. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnus talks with authors Chris Delhi and Neil Aldridge about why this year's market performance analysis is more timely and relevant than ever. During this year's annual convention, NAMIC and Aon released the third Mutual Factor Report. While this edition featured similar benchmarking metrics to the first two, it also included financials from the first two quarters of this year, as well as a thought leadership survey of more than 20 NAMIC member company leaders, making the 2020 report even more timely and relevant. Now to break down some of the findings, we have NAMIC's Neil Aldridge and Aon's Chris Delhi joining me today. Thanks for being with us on Unscripted. Well, thanks for having us, Chuck. I'm thrilled to be here. Agree. Neil, I look forward to the report. All right. That's your thrill. Come on. About to get started. <laughs> so, first, let me just say thanks, Chris um, and Aon, for your partnership with NAMIC. Uh, this has been a great partnership, now three years running. Uh, I'm just curious, from Aon's perspective, what made you make it such a priority? You know, it's interesting, Chuck. I remember the first year you guys produced the report uh, with the help of Dr. Hartwig. And I remember, you know, when it came out, we were sitting there reading it. And as the, the mutual practice group leader at Aon, of course, it was really sort of central to us staying in touch with what's going on and, and being um, on top of the key metrics in the, in the mutual segment. And I remember as I read it that year, I thought, this is just a fantastic report and a really great idea. And, you know, at the time we, we started thinking right away, what, what could we do, you know, that would be uh, similar or helpful. And, uh, you know, we couldn't have been uh, happier when we somehow got together with you guys and started talking about co-authoring the report and, and, and being a part of it. It, it was just a, a great uh, opportunity for us right from the start. And I think, as you know, you know, one of the things Aon really focuses on is content and, uh, you know, looking at this report, we, we really believe it couldn't be more important content for the industry uh, than it is. It's fantastic. I agree. I, uh, and I thought it especially was this year. So let's talk about this year. And usually uh, it just compares full year's results to the year prior. But 2020, obviously, we've been dealing with COVID. And it's been a very unusual for the year for the industry. So, you know, can you highlight a couple of the differences in this year's report and uh, why you, know, you all decided to include data from the first two quarters of 2020, which of course is the most recent uh, we had prior to publishing? Yeah, you know, obviously the um, the addition of the, the second quarter data for 2020 was key given what's been going on with COVID-19 and, and the stock market and, and all the associated sort of challenges. I think, um, you know, one one thing I would call out is is being able to pull forward that 2020 data into this report for September release was quite a challenge for the team, both at uh, NAMIC and Aon. And I guess 
I would observe that they did a heroic job to get that all done and uh, captured and collected and collated and into the report in time. But I do think, you know, looking at a report that was just based on year-end 2019 data, still important, but less meaningful this year than, than having the, the second quarter 2020 data. So I think it was an important addition. Um, I think so, another thing, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what did it tell us? I mean, as we look at, uh, you know, Q1, Q2 from this year uh, in regard to the overall industry and, and particularly how mutuals are faring during the pandemic. The, you know, the high level thing that I saw from it is that mutuals obviously have come out of these difficult times very well. Um, you know, policyholder surplus has continued to grow uh, despite the challenging period. Uh, they've continued to maintain a really solid market share over 40%. I think it's about 42% overall at this point. And maybe most telling was the fact that when you looked at the amount of uh, premium that was returned to uh, policyholders, either through re premium refunds or dividends, you know, the, the industry totaled $9 billion uh, of premium returned one way or another. And NAMIC, uh, or NAMIC members and mutual insurance companies were half of that which I think is really telling, they, an outsized share relative to their market. So um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, another way that was sort of manifested was in the fact that the, the combined ratios that uh, the mutual segment posted were around 102, I think 102.7 to be honest, or specific, uh, higher, significantly higher than what was posted by other forms of carriers, which remained under 100. And, and despite all of uh, the goings on, you know, continued to produce a profit for their shareholders. Well, the, the mutuals clearly looked to produce assistance for their policyholders, which is kind of a key difference in my mind. Yeah, I, I, those are exactly the thoughts I had uh, reading the report. Uh, you know, we talk about these things uh, and the mutual difference, the focus on policyholders, the management of the company for the long term for the benefit of policyholders. But, um, you know, unless you look at trends and usually, you know, the combined is always a couple points higher for the mutual segment over stock, which we view as, you know, additional benefits to policyholders. Uh, but then, you know, when you look at the dividends, it's one of the rare experiences we had to really look in a you know very challenging period over a compressed you know few months of, of, of a time frame and see the direct benefit again as you point out an outsized uh, benefit where uh, you know our member companies were um, providing more than half the, the benefits to policyholders directly through dividends or, or premium reduction uh, even while you know only writing uh, you know, less than 45% of the business. So I think it's um, it's really a great snapshot of uh, uh, service to policyholders and the mutual difference, uh, the title of the report, you know, over this um, unique and unusual time. So any surprises about these results, uh, you know, as you kind of drilled down into the numbers and looked at the either six months or I guess even year-end uh, numbers, we did include those as well. Okay, I guess the biggest surprise I had was, you know, if you look at the gross and policyholder surplus that mutuals have generated over the years, um, at the end of 2019, that number was 11% roughly for the for the year over year. 
which compared to a, an average over a five-year period of 5.6. Um, what, what I really found interesting was the degree to which, when you looked at 2020, the, you know, the, the two quarters of additional data that we dropped in, you know, everybody saw the dip in first quarter with what went on in the, the stock market and, and other markets, but, but very much bounced back held even and is clearly, the mutual segment is clearly on a track to increase policyholder surplus uh, again in 2020, which uh, is quite an accomplishment despite what's been going on and, and despite the, uh, the amount of uh, effort they've made to, to give back to their policyholders. Great point. Yeah, Neil, one, one thing I would I expand on that, I think that's a really interesting point, Chris. One thing that has kind of jumped out at me as we've talked a lot about the strength of the mutual segment, we talk a lot about that mutual companies have the benefit of managing risk for the long term. And they can kind of take have have a have a long-term view that generally results in them not having to make quick decisions necessarily uh, to, to manage their portfolios. But it's also a point I think that gets lost in a lot of this, which is the strength of this segment of the industry. Their financial excellence is a little boring at times. They they get that they sort of get you know painted with a brush of all oh, the quiet mutual companies, but they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're serving their policyholders. They have excellent financial strength. They've been around in many cases for centuries. They've been through difficult times before. And that, that none of that is necessarily surprising, but I think in times like these is when we see that financial excellence really shine. And sometimes it's just sort of lost uh, in the, in the yeah. way that the, the, the companies perform. And I think it's noteworthy and worth mentioning in all of this. No, that's a good point. One other point that I don't think, I'm not sure it was covered in our report, or I also recently reviewed the uh, AM Best uh, annual report on uh, kind of status of the mutual insurance industry, which is also released around our convention. And in one of those reports, and I think it might have been the best report as I think about it now, I think it showed that the mutual segment of the industry has grown faster than the stock segment of the industry uh, every year since 2011. Which again, I think, you know, we talked, I remember talking to our members uh, about how the financial crisis was going to produce a great environment where people were looking for certainty, people were looking for Main Street, you know, in their dealings with financial institutions, they were looking for community, um, all those things that our industry offers. And um, again, I, I saw it, um, you know, referenced as a, as a data point recently. Uh, showing that 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 in fact um, not only happened after the financial crisis, but it continues. So, well, let's turn to uh, anything else on the stats from the uh, uh, the mutual factor that we should cover. Interesting uh, factoids. I would just observe that uh, it's interesting, Chuck, that you mentioned the AMBAS report because I took a look at that too, and uh, the mutual factor also includes a segment on AMBAS. The two reports were very much in line with what they say, and I, I think, um, and the statistics they deliver, I, I think that call out you just made about the growth was really interesting because I, I, I don't know that we looked at that that closely in the mutual factor. But if you look at the, the elements of, of data around financial security that, that both AMBEST and, and our AMBEST numbers produced, 
it's just fantastic. And, and the, the marketplace continues to look really strong. You know, 97% of mutuals have appropriate or better ERM assessments, which to me is, is indicative of really moving with the times and, and adapting. There, there's a lot of real positive things to look at there. And I think um, uh, the mutual factor as kind of a resource for management there, there's great points in there to deliver to their customers and to their agents uh, around that security. And, and both the AMBEST report and the mutual factor give that sort of independent set of data that they can share in, with those constituencies, which I think is really useful. Totally agree. Um, so let's turn to the other aspect of this report, the thought leadership uh, area. Uh, you know, we interviewed uh, mutual executives, um, and not we, we had a consultant who did this and did an excellent job really drilling down into a lot of issues. But um, Neil, perhaps you can summarize for us uh, how we did it briefly and then what we found most importantly. Sure. Um, so we felt like this was something that we had to include this year. The previous mutual factor reports had had sort of public opinion survey uh aspects to them one one year we surveyed personal lines consumers and another year commercial insurance buyers to get their attitudes on mutuality and how mutual companies perform in their eyes and we felt like this year given the circumstances of the pandemic perhaps it was best to talk to uh the leaders of our industry uh not in a public opinion survey way but in a detailed interview way and so we we worked with John Gilfeather again, and John developed with us uh, a questionnaire. And these interviews took about 45 minutes or so. And so they really were in-depth discussions about what were on the minds of leaders of mutual companies and how they related to what's going on in the pandemic, what's next, what changes do they see that maybe are permanent versus those that may be fleeting and, and uh, several other aspects. And so the report uh, details these findings and they kind of break down in some major categories. So, you know, I just have one thing, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I saw the list of executives that, uh, of course, the executives are anonymous in their response, but, you know, the companies did range from small, you know, farm mutuals to vary by region, um, you know, one-stay riders, regionals, multi-billion dollar companies uh, vary by lines of business. So. I just want to note that it was a diverse group of, of CEOs, though I thought their perspectives were, um, you know, remarkably consistent. So I think you're about ready to yeah, go into some of uh, what we found from the interviews. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. You're right. We we did have a it, it was dynamic membership, which is very diverse in terms of size and, and line of business focus and state writings, and and the survey uh, definitely reflects that diversity. Uh, but you're right, there were a lot of similar conclusions. Uh, the first area that they identified was, was the workplace itself. Uh, we all know Enamic and Aon and many others have pivoted from an uh, in-the-office environment to a work-from-home uh, or work-remote environment, and, and many commented uh, that perhaps they were a little surprised how well that transition went in most cases. Uh, the ease in which they were able to transfer their operations. But that also is many, in many ways is a testament to the investments they've made in technology, the way their operations are modernized, that they could make that switch. I'm not sure a few years ago that perhaps that transition would have been as easy as it turned out to be. So that was also one of their observations was that change worked well. 
the other part of that is the, the question of how permanent is it? And there, there is some diversity in that uh, area of thought around perhaps when, how long does this last? And also, uh, is there some aspect of working remotely that perhaps is, is permanent? And, and many believe that in some cases it will be. Uh, and others think that we'll return to an office environment, uh, you know, once we have something like a vaccine that's widely available. But they also did reflect on some concerns. I think naturally there's some concern around what effect the remote work has on corporate cultures. I know many of our member companies really pride themselves on a corporate culture that uh, reflects their service to policyholders and is something that they, they believe differentiates themselves in terms of performance. And they worry about having a workplace that's not connected in a building and, and the normal human interaction that comes along with that, what, what effect that may have on corporate culture going forward. But uh, that was something that did emerge uh, from, uh, from the leaders. The other area that was noteworthy uh, was the rising concern around the regulatory, political risk, litigation environment, uh, those areas, we've all seen uh, the policymaker reaction and the media reaction to things like the retroactive business interruption insurance issues uh, and how they're generally not covered uh, in, in current commercial policies. And, and many worry about a reputational risk that the industry may suffer because of that. Uh, it, they also worry about that, that policymakers and regulators uh, will respond negatively to that public pressure and, and further consider things like perhaps mandating uh, that pandemics be covered by business interruption uh, policies. Uh, those kinds of things are definitely at the top of mind and the top of the worry list of leaders. Most believe that the language that they currently have in place is clear and that the industry will actually fare well when it comes to the litigation outcome of these questions, but it's more about what we do going forward and how these things are, do, are handled by policymakers. Um, and that's something, of course, from a NAMIC perspective that we're right in the middle of, uh, both uh, in terms of advocating for our member companies' uh, interests in state legislatures in Washington, at the NAIC, and in courts, uh, and also in the in the uh, in the media. So this is something where NAMIC and, and, and trade associations can really shine and represent the interests of their member companies. And I think we do that every day. Uh, but it is certainly something that they identified as an area of concern. The the, the third area that was pointed to was uh, what effect this may have long term on the marketplace. Will the changes uh, that we see occur, the investments needed in technology. Uh, will it spur M&A activity? Uh, we've seen uh, sort of a cycle of increase and decrease uh, in the industry around consolidation and M&A activity. And, and many of the thought leaders speculated that perhaps we might see another round of M&A activity coming out of the pandemic, uh, probably something more like next year. This year, M&A activity has actually declined a bit. Uh, but next year or the other following years, we could see an increase in that area. As a result, uh, perhaps some companies feeling like they can't in make the investments needed to sustain their operations uh, from a technology perspective. So that was something that was another area that was identified uh, by the thought leaders. And finally, the area of mutuality. 
was the, was the most common uh, item mentioned. And they felt like it was finally a real strength. And many times we talk about, we at NAMIC talk about the strengths of mutuality, but until really recently, and, and as Chuck mentioned earlier, that, that part of the fallout from the financial crisis was many mutual companies kind of finding their feet when it comes to discussing their mutuality, actually using it in a marketing sense, talking about the advantages of it. Uh, that's a relatively new phenomenon for this segment of the industry. Many leaders thought in years past, it was simply too complicated to convey and perhaps consumers didn't care about it. But there's definitely a growing sense that as we weather these crises, whether it's the financial crisis or the current pandemic or whatever the next one may be, that being a mutual company really gives these companies an advantage. And they're, they're really finding their voice about talking about it with their policyholders and their agents. And, and that was something that came through in the survey uh, to me in a bit of a surprising way in which it was something that felt a little bit new in their willingness to sort of market themselves as being mutual companies, what that means for policyholders and how it affects them positively going forward. Well, great summary, Neil. And uh, um, I agree it was very helpful and interesting uh, report. I would again uh, first thank you, Chris and Eon, for the partnership. It's been uh, excellent and longstanding, and I think even more valuable in this year uh, with this report, which I really do commend to uh, all of our listeners. Take a look at it and uh, find out more about what we talked about today. And Neil, thank you for your leadership in this area and both of you for the time today. And that's a wrap for us on Insurance Uncovered this week. Thank you to Holborn for sponsoring this episode. We'll be back on October 28th with more insurance news and interviews. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.